Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The race is on, and with the first season of Formula One's new ground effect rules done and dusted, we evaluate what worked, what didn't work, and whether the new regulations are fit for purpose. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to answer those questions and many more are Scott Mitchell Malm and Mark Hughes. Well, Mark, welcome to another podcast. Quite nice to wait to the end of the season before trying to do an overall verdict on this. I know everyone was rushing to to leap to conclusions on the uh, on the regulations, and obviously we gave our opinions on that. But it it is quite nice to have a, a full data set, as it were, to to work on. Exactly, and it was a very big deal. You know, the, the, these this set of regulations were many years in the making, and um, they promised a lot, and a lot was claimed for them. And so, yeah, we've now got a decent sample size to. Um, Sort of work through and, and have a look and see what uh, see, see what effect it actually did have and how that compares to the original hopes. Yeah, certainly were a long time coming, weren't they, Scott? I remember being in Austin in 2019 when they announced the package and it seemed like one of those things that would never come with it being delayed for a year, certainly on the technical regulations side, thanks to COVID. So probably the most anticipated season for a long time. Yeah, it's nice to have had um, such a big suite of changes as well that just had lots of different things that you could get excited by. And I remember us having a conversation, I can't remember when it would have been, two, three years ago perhaps, about the um, the potential misplaced enthusiasm that F1 had for the rules. And you, you brought up um, the fact that they've tried to go down this route before. And I think the thing that was really interesting for me was that they'd never successfully got that proper cost cap in before. And the fact that they'd been able to get that through the door meant that maybe other stuff... Would um, would be better as well. So, in addition to having the specific 2022 technical regulations, which is obviously going to be a bigger focus today, you have all this other stuff around it. So that's what's been exciting for me is to see these rules come in against a, a backdrop of wider change, and it's all geared towards making F1 better. And there's some actual logic to all of the changes as well. Like it's not just change for change's sake. So that's what has been. That's what's been most interesting for me and obviously this year was the first chance we had for for a short-term judgment all the other stuff is uh is, is a long-term effect but the racing that can change the here and now so it's going to be quite fun i think to to sort of look back on 2022 from that perspective in this podcast because as you say you can't really do that during the year as much as some people were quite earnest to yeah, it, it was interesting because you mentioned the financial regulations there and the cost cap, and that's a crucial part of these regulations. Because it came in a year earlier, it's easy to forget that they were all part of the same thing, but the financial regs came in because they weren't delayed by COVID because they didn't need to be. In fact, the financial regs were made more aggressive. They they lopped a chunk off the cost cap baseline figure, partly in response to the economic impact of, of COVID. So, yeah, there's a there's a broader landscape there and, and almost one season's worth is the kind of minimal amount that you can start to take preliminary conclusions on. But there is a lot to get into and, and I think it's, it's useful to look at what the stated objectives were and measure them against what we actually saw. So, Scott, 
the absolute number one objective was improving raceability. That was a word that Ross Braun kept using. That's minimising turbulence, allowing drivers to run more closely, etc. How successful do you think this attempt was? I think that this actually worked quite well. Um, th- there were some sort of wider limitations with, with this. I think depending on certain car designs and characteristics and also you know ambient and track temperatures and circuit layouts i think we had i think we still had the issue of tires overheating from time to time and some drivers were more critical of this than others and that kind of that 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 can mask the actual aerodynamic effect which is what the the 2022 regulations were, were were meant to address because if the tires are overheating and you you don't want to run closely anyway because then all you're doing is sliding around making the problem worse and you get trapped in this horrible negative cycle but i think there were signs early on even in testing that the cars could follow more closely and i think that was borne out in the early races i remember charles leclerc and max verstappen saying that their battles in bahrain and saudi arabia wouldn't have been possible in the old generation of cars and you had other people i think esteban ocon was talking about how these cars can be raced a lot more like in the karting days where you you can follow closely and you're lining up at various corners, but you can fight back quicker as well because there are different overtaking opportunities and places. And I think over the course of the year, we saw, I think we saw people being able to fight where they weren't necessarily able to fight in the past. Um, There was talk obviously about whether they would, it would, it would create new overtaking places or make overtaking possible in places that it was more difficult in, in the past. I can't think of any great examples of that off the top of my head, but I think over the course of the year, there were definitely, definitely examples, plenty of examples of cars simply being able to follow more closely. And whether that led to loads of overtaking, real actual overtaking kind of isn't really the point for me it was just nice that cars could follow close and you can have tense battles that play out over a long period of time I think I think that's a a part of racing that not a lot of people but I think some people miss the point there that that's also good racing yeah I think it was possible to follow more closely definitely but it was it was more difficult then to pass once you'd got into the position of following closely because the cars carried less drag so there was less difference between DRS and non-DRS and you saw how the size and frequency of DRS trains increased this year, and that was why. So that sort of stalemated some of the gains made through being able to follow closer. The ability to follow closely brought more gains than what was lost through the smaller differences in drag, I think. So overall, it was a positive, but it it was neutered a little, and it certainly didn't bring enough to consider abolishing DRS, which was the original hope. Yeah, they're very much committed to DRS hanging around now. It's one of those things that's a nice idea to get rid of, and there's a desire to, but finding a way to make that happen is proving elusive. And there is the problem of the laws of physics, isn't there? You know, fundamentally, you can't change parameters of the car without having an effect on all aspects of it. So by reducing the turbulence, that also led to the slipstream effect being reduced a little bit. So all of these things are connected and it's easy to come up with with quick fixes and and easy solutions but they don't necessarily work in isolation but scott do you think we'd have a slightly different perspective of this had the pattern we saw in the early races continued because as you mentioned bahrain and saudi arabia great battles for the lead and there were some good battles down the order as well you mentioned ocon remember the ocon alonso battle in saudi arabia that was a bit self-defeating for alpine but that was quite dramatic so there is that element we'll get on to how competitive things were across the field later but 
there is another factor feeding into this, which is how quick the cars, particularly at the fronts, are relative to each other. Yeah, that is absolutely the case. Um, and it was one of the great shames, if not the great shame, of the 2022 season that what we saw in Bahrain and Saudi turned out to be a false dawn, didn't it? Rather than actually a, a reflection of what the season was to come. I, I was thinking, ah, oh, I don't think I've got another season like 2021 in me. <laughs> but that looked like what we were tracking towards after Jeddah. Um, but just because we lost that at the very, very front on a regular basis doesn't mean it disappeared. I mean, for me... And this is maybe a little bit of a bad example because Silverstone, I think, is just a great racetrack. I think it, I think even even the worst F1 cars of the last few years were able to race around there quite well. But the 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 British Grand Prix at Silverstone, I, I thought, was a great example of what the cars are, are capable of doing. Um, there was some really really awesome fighting there, and it is that was a large part down to to the layout of Silverstone, the fact that it does allow drivers to come back at following corners and and have different sequences but the way that cars were able to follow through cops and then through maggots and beckets and onto the hangar straight yeah you you did then see the problem of the sort of weakened drs but it was a good example even mid-season when the the competitive order was changing slightly of what these cars were, were capable of and, and there were still examples of that later on um i also think right towards the end of the season in the in the united states and and, and brazil we also saw examples of cars at the front being able to follow quite closely, line up moves and, and and run pretty close behind and put the pressure on. So I, I think there was evidence beyond the first couple of races. It's just the first couple of races were just, F1 couldn't have hoped for a better advert right at the start of the new regulations. Yeah, I think those races that you referenced, Scott, and um, the, the, the early ones in Silverstone, an element that shouldn't be overlooked in why the racing was so good it was unconnected to the um, the new regs. I think was uh, a lot of it was um, the the hybrids and uh, just by definition the different states of charge you're going to get between cars at different times on the same place uh, same piece of track, and so you know traditionally the overtakes have come under braking at the end of straights, and I think a lot of these ones come on acceleration out of the corners that puts them in position to choose the line the, the car behind because you know the because of the variation in states of charge of the battery um, one car can be in a position where it's got you know a big chunk of horsepower more than another one and then of course that reverts as, as the is that one's used up and the other one's been able to harvest some so I, I think also I think we should give credit to the the hybrid format of, of um, power units in, in in contributing to the the overtakes that's a very good point because racing is produced by variables isn't it if the cars are all just running at their sort of average pace lap after lap after lap they'll generally sort themselves out quite quickly so i think that's a very uh, a very valid point but mark let's talk a little bit about overtaking in detail because apparently there were 785 overtakes in 2022 compared to 599 last year so surely that's confirmation that the formula works <laughs> well, it says something. It's probably something positive as well. But we need, of course, to be wary of measuring how good the racing is by how many overtakes there are, because sometimes the best races are those where an overtake might happen but never does because the guy in front is driving a perfect defensive race. So you, you think back to the late stages of the Brazilian Grand Prix with George Russell leading and Lewis Hamilton breathing down his neck and the other Merck pushing and probing. And George and on just one tiny slip, one wrong placement or a snatch break, and Lewis would have been through. That was great racing, but there wasn't actually an overtake. But yeah, the idea was that 
the new cars would make it easier to follow closely and that would inevitably increase the number of overtakes. So I, I guess that has happened. Um, but it's the ability to follow closely is more important than the number of overtakes, some of which have been may have been pretty unexciting. You know, the, the car behind gets gets past it's pretty much straight away. There's nothing very exciting about that. The new cars definitely, definitely allow the following car to get closer, as we've already discussed, and to be able to drive like that for longer, um, thanks to the tyre improvements, which we've touched on. Yeah, there's always that temptation to quantify everything and measure everything, which is a great thing to do, but sometimes things aren't easily measurable. And that the overtaking statistics are the ones that are always used to to measure things. But I don't think they're in isolation an especially reliable metric for for how good the racing is, because that's such a multi-dimensional, uh multi-dimensional thing. And a lot of those will have been DRS drive bys, and a lot of them also will have been people who are out of sync on pit stops and that kind of thing, because of the way the tires are now. Obviously, you, you stop and then you start clearing slower cars usually so yeah it's it, it's a rather low res statistic but scott we have to also say that we did see max verstappen win from what 14th on the grid at spa with with relative easy one from seventh on the grid one from 10th on the grid and yeah that reflects how strong the verstappen red bull package was but it also shows you're not just buried in the pack if you're down the order which is kind of what people do want to see isn't it yeah, absolutely. And also Verstappen said this after he won the world title in Japan that actually and he called it a beautiful trait of the 2022 cars. Just that ability to be able to run a bit more closely gave you an opportunity to use a superior Sunday package, even if it was only a small edge, because obviously he spent the first part of the year with a demonstrably slower Saturday car. It was a slower qualifying car, the Red Bull, because it was it was heavy, uh, it was a bit lazy on on the front. But whether that, I'm not going to say that helped, but I think the weaknesses of the package were mitigated over a race distance, and the Ferrari was a bit weaker more often than not over a race distance. And so Verstappen said that the the nature of the regulations were key to some of his early victories, um, especially in the first half of the season before the car was quicker. Um, you can argue whether or not he would have. I think you still. I think he would have. Uh, I think he probably would have won the Belgian Grand Prix on, in in any generation of car if you just transposed the car advantage and the way he was driving that weekend into any era of Formula One. I think he wins from that place on the grid, but. I think it's fair to say somewhere like Hungary, I think that's a I think that's a much harder victory to pull off in a different aerodynamic setup. Um and I think that that was yeah, testimony to obviously the job he did and everything, but I think we can take his his opinion on what it says about the 2022 regs at, at face value. I I think we should we can give him and the rules the benefit of the doubt there. Now that's not to say that the 2022 regs were key to Max becoming the world champion or anything like that. But they did serve a purpose in that it was proof for Stappen's run from the first race to probably the summer break was proof that these regs do allow you to win if you don't qualify on pole. And I know that there are plenty of examples of that from, from recent years, but there was just a sustained, well, not necessarily sustained because obviously it wasn't every single weekend, but there was a, there was a healthy number of examples of this in the first half of the year. So I think it's absolutely valid to use the Verstappen-Leclerc comparison or the wins that Verstappen had as a, a bit of uh, evidence. It might be a bit circumstantial evidence, I suppose, but I think it all. I think you can all you can throw it into the pot. Let's put it that way. Yeah, and there were during the season plenty of races where there were 
what you might call legitimate racing passes for the lead. Usually it was Verstappen denying Leclerc as the as the general pattern, but we saw that particularly early in the season that happened in places like Miami, Imola in the sprint race, etc. So we we did see these uh, these these good battles, but just looking Mark at the the kind of technicality of it the basic concept of the ground effect cars the minimizing of outwash just in terms of the way the airflow structures shed by the car have proved to be they are pretty close to what the FIA and F1 promised so from that perspective they have kind of delivered on the the characteristics they were hoping to create so I guess that's that's a, a big tick in the box isn't it you know you can't you can't eliminate the turbulence much as people would like to but it has pretty much had the effect that was that was intended in that regard, hasn't it? Aerodynamically, yes, and and, and the aerodynamics were the the number one um, driver, if you like, of, of the, the the traits that they were um, trying to alleviate with the the, the difficulty in following closely. Um, but it we now haven't ticked that box, and and they've been very uh, conscientious about. Um, Keeping that as the target, do you see sort of um, some innovations that have been made through the season, which have been quite clever, but subvert the intention of the of the aerodynamic regs? Um, have, have subsequently been banned. So I'm thinking of the, uh, the the Aston Martin rear wing end plates, which you know, which very clever, but it it, it worked against what the regulations were trying to achieve. So they were allowed to have it for the balance of the season. Um, but it's it won't be around for for this coming season, so yeah, they've they've been quite conscientious on on retaining that that vision that of the aerodynamics. But we're now down to second order um, and problems such as the tyres. So having ticked the aerodynamics box, it's it's making it clearer what the the, the you know the, the the mix is now in terms of improving the racing further. Yeah, of course. And there's there's very minor changes, as you said, for next year. That Aston Martin end plate, rear wing end plate design's been outlawed. The Mercedes front wing end plate design's outlawed. And obviously they uh the FI didn't like the look of those uh, those outwash fasteners that Mercedes attempted to uh, to bring late in the season and said no, those weren't uh, legal based on the uh regs. It is positive that this kind of process of trying to measure innovations against the intent of the rules, Scott, was quite an important part of these regulations. And that's that seems to have worked fairly well in that they've they've let people run things and then said no, we we don't want that. So we're, we're banning it. And that was always made pretty clear under the rules that this is what would happen. Yes, it's strangling innovation, but when you're producing something like the Aston Martin rear wing end plate, you must know as a team, there's a pretty good chance it's going to get bidden for the following year. Yeah. Um, it was all part of that, the, the different ways of being able to police the, um, the intent of, of, of the regulations. There was the fact that the teams knew that F1 and the FAA were going to take a dim view of every, of anything that countered the intent of the regs. So there was a chance that stuff would get out outlawed either short term or medium term. So you, do you really want to chance your arm? But then the second part of that was obviously the bigger picture and the budget cap and protecting the intent of the 2022 regs by having the teams know that there was the implicit threat of wa- wasting a load of money on something that would very quickly be be banned. So... I think I, I remember I remember being on a call with um, I think uh, Ross Braun and Nicholas Tombasis at the very start of the year, talking about the um, talking about the the potential of the regulations and the way that they wanted to enshrine them, and there was an amusing bit of uh, of needle where um, 
um, Tom Passis felt the need to say, I don't think anyone's going to come up with anything as dodgy as the double diffuser, for example. And obviously, like, Ross was on the call as well, so then sort of picked up and just went, oh, thanks for that, Nicholas. I thought we'd move past that. <laughs> this is obviously a nice little nod to the past. Um, but there was nothing close to the double diffuser, was there, this year? And, and I don't think that was ever really a threat. Um, and you can argue that's a bad thing, as you say, because um, you're stifling creativity. But I always thought it was a bit strange. Uh, well, may- maybe it was natural that people were going to gravitate towards, oh, is someone going to find the double diffuser and ruin the regs? Um, but I don't think that was ever really a risk. And I don't think we saw anything like it as uh, the way it played out. I think the system that they had in place, both the sort of formal structure of being aware of what teams were doing and having to check CAD designs and whatnot, and then the sort of uh, the off the books unofficial way of policing it, all those implicit threats and the the knowledge that the teams had about making sure they didn't waste time and money. I think that all came together to work quite nicely. And the twenty twenty two regs are not perfect, and I think over time teams would find a way to just sort of even within the so called intent of the regulations, they'd find some ways to undermine them slightly. So there's always ways to improve, but I do think it was a cautiously optimistic start on the policing side as well. Um, the whole point is that you need to you need to be sure that the regs are robust and the policing methods are robust. Maybe they didn't get challenged as as hard as they could have been this year, but I think by and large it was it was quite successful in that regard. Yeah, I think all these elements we've spoken about in the first part of this podcast are very much kind of qualified successes there's still room for improvement but they're all a step in the right direction it just depends how big that stride is Uh, a quick reminder for those looking for a christmas present for an f1 fan we are having our first the race f1 live podcast at pod live sports on february the 12th that's a sunday starts at 1 30 p.m so an afternoon show won't take up your evening traditional european f1 race slot you might say ted kravitz will be there from sky sports f1 i'll be there scott will be there and we'll be hanging around as well to say hello and i imagine scott by then we're going to be in a thick of launch season, aren't we, at that point? I imagine we probably will have seen at least some hints of the new cars by that point. Yeah, we'll be we'll be way past reflecting on 2022 by then, and we'll um we'll be, I think, very, very excited about what's coming in, in, in 2023. I'd be amazed if we haven't seen a a car or two, and if there isn't already sort of a few talking points to to really get stuck into, and obviously testing won't be far away either. So, yeah, looking forward to it. It's going to be loads to discuss, and it'll we'll be right in the middle of it. Whatever we've seen, whatever we've heard, we will be in the middle of all that excitement starting to bubble up for for, for the new year, which is always a, a just a really really enjoyable part of it. Before the reality, obviously, of doing twenty four races sinks in for all of us. <laughs> Yeah, it's just 11 days before the Bahrain test, so it will be very much in that exciting part of the season when everybody's really anticipating what's to come. Hopefully we are going to see a a pretty dramatic season, so we'll be looking ahead to the year, looking at the cars, the technical challenges, etc. Loads of big talking points there, and tickets are selling quickly, so head to the link in the description to get your tickets or search for PodLive and the Race F1 podcast online and you should find it. Scott, another long-term objective of the regulations is to close up the field. Given Red Bull utterly dominated, does that mean this target has to be considered a failure? <laughs> um, no, because the way the domination that Red Bull had this season was just, a, I, th- I think, a, a bit of an, an anomaly versus actually how the season could have played out. It was down to circumstance. I mean, in the last few races, the the 
if you look at Red Bull versus Ferrari, for example, second half of the year, Red Bull absolutely trounced Ferrari and the regulations were an absolute joke and no other team got, got near them over the balance of the season. But if you look at it up to up to the summer break, the Ferrari was at the very least an equal match to the Red Bull. The the cars could have been very, very equal, equally matched. And by the end of the year, the Mercedes on certain circuits especially was basically in that mix as well. So you did... In qualifying in particular, you did get to a point towards the end of the year where there were three cars that were were quite evenly matched. There was obviously still a gap to um, to the group behind, but I think at certain circuits, the gap from the, the fastest to the slowest was actually pretty respectable. And the fact is that that gap from third to fourth was so big in previous seasons that just because we had new technical regulations, I, d- I don't think that was single-handedly going to be enough to 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 change the the all the existing advantages and and deficits that that, that were there. Um, it was an opportunity to potentially nibble away at the gap further. It was a potential. It was an opportunity for teams, particularly further down the midfield, to make a bit of a jump which I think is exactly what we saw with the likes of um, Sauber and Alfa Romeo and uh, obviously Alpine as well, got themselves right to the front of the midfield, which was something that I think a, tw- a normal 2021 to 2022 step in, in the same regulations, I don't think that Alpine progress happens in 2022. So yeah, there was a there was a failure in, if, if in terms of there, we didn't have a, a 2009-style team suddenly jumping into podium contention and it was worse in terms of the variety of podiums we saw over the course of the year but I honestly thought that was inevitable with a major rule change in the current era where the big three teams have a bunch of baked in advantages what I'm hoping now is that the 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 limited spending power means that the biggest teams won't just sort of keep increasing their performance exponentially and it's actually the teams that are slightly further down have more potential to 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 unlock in this in this set of regulations that would be my glass half full take um but obviously whether that plays out in reality is obviously a quite a different quite a different story yeah i think that's key scott the the time scale we're talking about and the 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 gap between the front and the head of the midfield was actually slightly greater this year than last but Give it a chance. There's, there's still the momentum of previous investment by the big teams, and just because they're spending similar amounts now doesn't mean they're not still benefiting from previous investment. So that one was always going to take a while to work through the system. Um, the budget cap takes effect is, is, is a sort of longer term, really. Um, the idea that the aero regs themselves would close up the field because they were more prescriptive, that hasn't really worked out. Um, there was still a lot of design freedom in the underbodies and the suspension, and that's where the, the big advantage turned out to be, um, as demonstrated by Red Bull. And I actually like that. I think it's good that there's still differentiation to be made by better designs and that excellence and creativity is still rewarded by lap time. But what never sat easily before was that an advantage could be had just by being able to throw more money at it, a sort of bulldozer approach rather than cleverness. And that's what I hope the cost cap will in time eradicate. But you still have the best people in the top teams at the moment. And as that mixes up after a few years, it should improve further. And we should say, we talk long term here. We are talking very long term. This is part of a evolving process. Not only did 
the FIA and F1 put a huge amount of research into these regulations, but they're connected to the 2026 regs that are being worked on at the moment. They'll have the new generation power units for those, and there'll be modified chassis regulations. They're going to cut the drag of the car, a bit of movable aero to achieve that. The financial effects are going to, you know, you're, you're, you're talking like a decade or more, really, to have this effect of really closing things up because all the old baked-in advantages that are there. And that's not just the financial regs and the cost cap. That's also the new Concord that was signed a couple of years ago that's a much more equitable split between the teams of the share of F1's revenue that they get. And you've got the ATR as well, obviously rewards well, uh, rewards those who finish at the bottom of the championship with the most CFD and wind tunnel time, so to speak, more of a consolation prize. So that'll have a, an effect. So over a very long timeline, the overall performance potential of these cars should get tighter, but it is going to take a, a really long time. I do suspect next year we won't see the competitive spread much tighter. But if you look at it from front to back, it was closer on average this year. Slightly limited metric because Haas obviously weren't really trying with the car last year. They threw everything at this year's car. And actually, if you look at first to ninth, the average last year to this year is about the same. So, yeah, no massive uh, revolution. But let's talk a little bit now about the driving challenge, Mark, because the FI has always stressed the importance of maintaining a driving challenge. These cars were very different to the old ones. Some drivers adapted to the cars better than others. Certainly some did it a lot quicker than others. What were the key changes in the way these cars performed and had to be driven? Uh, they were, by comparison to what we had before, clumsy and unresponsive in the slow corners. They couldn't be bounced over the curbs like before, but they were monstrously fast in the medium to high speed corners and as the, those floors, the ground effect floors really began to work. Um, the car balance tended to be more towards understeer than be before, especially in the low-speed sections. Um, the car which got around that agility limitation immediately was the Ferrari, and it was extremely responsive in its balance to how you use the brakes and the throttle together, a trick which Leclerc was immediately onto and exploited brilliantly well, which took Sainz half a season to catch up on. The, the Red Bull was initially fairly unresponsive, and that brought Max Verstappen down closer to Sergio Perez because the limit was, by definition, more accessible. But as the weight came off the front of it and the front tyres were no longer being overwhelmed early in the turn, it became more like the traditional pointy Red Bull in which Verstappen thrived. So in the early part of the season, the cars were probably less demanding, ironically, and it was as they became more responsive at the front, those which did, that the challenge increased. And as I said, the Ferrari was the exception. It took Leclerc to be fully on. It took a Leclerc type of driver to be fully on top of that challenge from the start, helping it make it the fastest car in the first part of the season. Um, so, yeah, I think the cars were still absolutely a challenge to drive, as can be seen by some of the average qualifying differences between drivers. You know, three-tenths average between Verstappen and Perez, almost four-tenths Albon to Latifi. These are big gaps, which speak of a challenging car. One of the things that I thought was really interesting about the um, about this year's uh, generation of car is that the um, the complex aerodynamics and the way that... Um, the way that everything had to 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 interact, especially obviously with the underfloor, just created such fascinating differences in 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 balance, and it was brilliantly illustrated by the teams that were that were struggling to get on top of this early on. I remember going out to turns nine and ten in in Bahrain um, at the end of the at the end of testing, and obviously that's a sort of combination phase corner entry where you're nicely loaded up as you flick through the the left hand kink and then. As the car, as, as the track sort of rises over that crest and then falls away, 
there's a absolute ton of weight transfer and pitch and roll going on there and the the just the the airflow just goes absolutely chaotic and the cars that were quite well sorted and understood and just i think had a sort of good um connection i think from from front to back kept all of that largely under control so the the good cars the red bull even the red bull and 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 the ferrari in particular looked really good into that section just nicely controlled wasn't really sort of playing around on on entry to the apex and the driver just looked in command of it but as as the cars would come through you could see how that shifted the the mercedes looked just a little bit different every single lap that in, inherent consistency of that car's platform just looked like a nightmare and by far and away the absolute worst one coming through was the williams which just seemed to lose all of its downforce basically um as it got to its lowest speed uh, through all of that 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 movement of the car's body and i just knew walking away from there that the williams was probably going to be the slowest car at the start at, certainly in bahrain and I remember speaking to someone at the team a couple of races to the, uh, before the end of the season, and they were explaining that that was one of the interesting challenges of these rules is that with that Williams, yes, obviously they would like to they would like to add downforce to the car, and the fact that that car was so quick on the straights this year does tell you that it was um, lacking drag because it was lacking downforce. They said that actually one of their biggest goals for next year actually is almost um, moving around where the downforce is on the car and in the different corner phases. Because actually, if they had the same amount of downforce they had this year, but they could just keep a bit more of it in the corners, it would be a different prospect. And that, to me, is one of the really fascinating challenges of these these regulations. Obviously, that's a huge technical challenge from a from a team point of view. But I think that speaks to the driving challenge as well, because... It's almost impossible to see from the outside. Obviously, if you go to a specific corner combination, you do you do get a really good um, example of it. But if you're just watching on television, for example, which so many people are, you, you can't tell what the drivers are having to deal with and just how much the balance of these cars can shift lap to lap. Some of the cars were really, really wind sensitive as uh, as well. So I, I thought I thought that this this generation of car in some ways made the driving challenge worse because um they they looked so horrible at low speed didn't they how how heavy they were and lazy they were and and that didn't really do justice i think to what the drivers were having to do it was quite an ugly way of having to drive the cars not a very sort of sexy sell for the sporting side but just from a pure technical driving challenge i i think these cars were really really interesting from start to finish and i'd be fascinated to see what potential problems are unlocked next year when teams keep finding more ways to exploit the colossal potential of the ground effect and what potential driving challenges that throws up even further. Yeah, we did see the aero for some teams become more refined over the year. Obviously, the simpler top body aero meant there there was just fewer aero tools to get that through corner balance. But we did see Mark with Red Bull, for example, they kept changing around those those floor fences at the front. The 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 four vanes are allowed at the front of of the the floor. Little tweaks to those seem to have big impacts in terms of 
how you control the arrow centre of pressure, etc. So we're seeing teams finding subtle ways within prescriptive regulations to get a little bit more control over that centre of pressure, etc., and get a little bit more low speed front end, etc. Yeah, Red Bull were leading the game there. They were absolutely able to tune their floor um, to the circuit demands, and um, I think you'll see more and more teams doing that. As uh, that's that's the way that is the way forward. That is the way of. Um, getting what Scott was describing from the the Williams guys of, of moving the, the downforce around where you need it at, uh, according to the track. And with the progress we saw this year, do we think porpoising is now a, a thing of the past? Obviously, slight rule tweak for next season, the floor edge height a little bit higher. We didn't see the cars bouncing quite so aggressively later in the season, although some did struggle a little bit in Abu Dhabi. Do we think that's done and dusted, Scott, or is it always going to be there in some way, shape or form? I think the risk is is there, but I don't know. I, I think the way that the porpoising saga played out this year, I, I think in hindsight, I think it was overplayed slightly in the first few months, um, just purely because once the FIA got involved, and look, maybe the way it was played in the first few months was absolutely critical because it forced the FIA to get involved in this way, but... The, the the action that was taken through the year with 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 technical directives and then obviously the the slight change to the rules for 2023 as well it forced the teams to go in a direction that basically meant that porpoising wasn't a problem at all in the second half of the season except as as you mentioned it, it cropped up a couple of times in specific circumstances so to me that just sort of strengthened the argument that some people were making in the first part of the year which is that teams don't have to suffer from this problem if they want to, they can actually just tune their cars so that the porpoising is not there. And if it is a, if it's a natural side effect of the regulations, then there is an argument to be made that actually the team should have just been left to get on with it and either put up with it or just tune the cars in a way that they don't suffer from it. Now, as it happens, intervening on safety grounds, putting in that porpoising metric to make sure that the teams don't take unnecessary risks. I'm actually okay with that. I mean, I don't see any evidence that it dramatically changed the pecking order. I, despite what they say, I'm still convinced that Ferrari suffered from it from to, to a degree. But I didn't see it being an absolutely revelatory factor in a stunning second half of the season for Mercedes. It certainly didn't clip Rebels' wings, did it, based on the way that they, they cracked on in the second half of the year. So... Yeah, the interference I'm actually okay with. Um, I'd be surprised if the the problem is 100% eliminated for now and ever more because I think it is just an intrinsic risk within this type of aerodynamic rule set. And as I sort of hinted at before, teams will be chasing more and more downforce. They will be finding ways to exploit the ground effect even more. And I think, as I sort of mentioned, with the intricacy of the airflow and everything and the way it all combines... I don't think any team can say with 100% certainty that they know every single thing that they could do that would trigger porpoising. So we might get to pre-season testing next year and have one or two cars that are suddenly dealing with the same problem again or maybe the problem for the first time because of a, de- a development direction that has basically unlocked it. Yeah, I think it'll probably be a, a limit there to be sat inside. Do you think, Mark, it's going to be something that's there that you, you kind of push the floor as aggressively as you can, but that's that's always the the kind of limit that you're you're working against a little bit like when you're talking about top body aero obviously you want to work the surfaces as hard as you can without getting problematic stalls is it just sort of a hard limit that's that's always going to be there that you want to get close to but but not overstep 
Yeah, I think that's largely true. It's 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 always just just around the corner. It's just about to happen, and that's about where you want to be running the car. Um, but I think the combination of the team is better understanding of that. The um, the FIA metrics that were put into place and the slight um, increase in the the floor height at the, ahead of the rear tire for next year, I think all those things will um, mean that we don't. It, it's not a, a big issue. I think we will just see. It's always latent. It's always just there, but it, it, I don't think we'll see the the problems we did last year or in, in twenty two. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Let's move on to the tyres in a bit more detail now. Mark Pirelli produced all new tyres for the 18-inch wheel rims in 2022. The hope was they could be pushed harder for longer with less overheating. How well did they work? How well did Pirelli hit its targets? It worked to an extent. Uh, The tyres could be brought back from thermal degradation if you eased off for a while, whereas before they really couldn't. Um, previously, once once you got them too hot, that was it. They were junk and they would be slow no matter how much tread was still left on them. Now you could bring them back uh, so long as you didn't let them stay too hot for too long, you could bring them back. Um, so they were a bit more robust in that sense. Um, but the dominant mechanism of DEG was still thermal. And if you looked at a typical race, drivers were still having to drive around two to three seconds off their potential pace in order to get the stint lengths for the fastest strategy. So usually it was only when it was cooler than expected or the tyre was marginally too hard that that wasn't the case. Um, So probably a bit of a clue there in which direction to head. Um, So still a long way to go, but yes, better. Definitely going in the right direction and hopefully better again in twenty three. As Pirelli is focusing on improving the performance of the front tyre in particular, which was generally weaker relative to the rear compared to what we had before with the old sizes. So, yeah, uh, encouraged, but uh, I would make the point it's still um, far from where we want to, ideally where we want to be. Yeah, it's very difficult for the the tyre supplier. Obviously, the cars were developed on the mule cars, which tried to simulate the the downforce characteristics of, of these cars, but they couldn't do it that precisely. Obviously, that understeer balance was there when they tested them towards the end of last year but it was felt that that would be cancelled out by the the kind of re-optimization but that wasn't quite the case so they've yeah tried to for, for next year get a slightly less understeer balance but also been wary of not going too far just in case the improving front ends switches the balance and then suddenly it becomes oversteery so that's that's an interesting challenge but i guess there's always the problem with when you're making tires for 798 kilos the minimum weight of these cars extraordinarily 
heavy. That's almost 200 kilos heavier than they were kind of at the end of the refueling era in, in 2009. So that's a big step, isn't it, Scott? So I guess this is one of those areas where we've got to be realistic about what physics will allow because tyres will overheat if you put constant amounts of, you know, huge amounts of energy and a heavy car through them. So where do we set the bar for what's what should be expected from Pirelli? I think we'll probably all agree it's not quite good enough, but we also can't expect impossible tyres, can we? Uh, no, and I'm I'm always wary of sounding like a bit of a Pirelli apologist, but I, d- I do feel like they've got a bit of an impossible task in in Formula One. Um, I I honestly don't know enough about the the science behind it to know if you can actually make a a tire that can properly withstand that much that much load. Um, can offer really nice peak of grip over one lap, but also be durable enough to give you a, a potential second run in qualifying while also if you're managing it over a race stint being strong enough for drivers to push but also degrade enough so that you can actually have pit stops like I, I don't actually know if that that wish list which it felt like was definitely the wish list at least a few years ago and I think has been refined slightly by this the the infamous F Pirelli and F1 target letter I don't know if that's actually all achievable one thing I one thing I would say is that I honestly don't know how effective the the Pirelli testing program is and I would love to know in an ideal world, I know in an ideal world you'd have every car running every single day, but realistically, in your realistic ideal world if such a thing exists, how many how many tests would you want to do over the course of the year? What tracks would you want to do them at and what cars would you want to use? Because I think one of the other factors that perhaps gets easily forgotten is in developing the 2022 tires Pirelli didn't have proper 2022 cars to test with they had those mule cars which I honestly don't know how reflective they were of the real thing and they had simulations but the team's simulations are always out of date and by the time you get to running the tires in reality for the first time at the start of 2020 pre-season testing how different were those cars to everything Pirelli had worked with they would have been very different so I think I think I think the tires were were better this year although still not perfect and there are still potential issues with next year's tires with a couple of drivers suggesting that they haven't heard uh, they haven't felt much difference but 2023 is a much better way of testing Pirelli's capacity to produce the tires that will define this era of Formula 1 because they've actually been able to develop the tires by testing them on relevant cars. So I will say a I will give it sort of a tentative kind of I don't know sort of C plus for Pirelli this year, maybe a B minus if I'm feeling generous, but I think a C plus is probably a bit fairer. Um and then next year, the 2023 tires is the one that they there can be no excuses for. And we will know next year I think whether or not this era of Formula 1 and the regulations could be undermined by the quality of the tyres. I, I do fear that longer term will be tyre limited. I'm not saying that's Pirelli's fault. I think it's just to borrow your favourite phrase. I think sometimes you know you're just dealing with physics, aren't you? You're contained by the physics. Well, there's that big philosophical question about control tyres versus tyre wars, etc. It may be that one of those benefits of F1 getting its financial house in order a little bit and the greater stability of the teams could mean that down the line. There could be the potential for some kind of uh, tyre wall to emerge, which does improve the breed of the tyres dramatically. And Pirelli's never had to 
well, not not in this incarnation of Formula One. It's never had to compete with another tyre supplier since coming back in, in in 2011 because it is a control formula. So that that's an interesting question. But about half the races were were one stoppers. Basically, I guess that's the slight disappointment mark because they did set the objective of wanting to have strategic variation. We saw that occasionally, but it, it's still not dramatically so. And again, they're they're trying to cover all the circuits with a, a range of, of five compounds. So there's always going to be gaps and uh, some of those compounds weren't perfectly spaced. So I guess, again, there, there's limitations there, aren't there? Yeah, it's a very difficult balance to achieve. And sometimes when you look at those races, which in hindsight were one-stoppers, um, they the difference was tiny. The difference over a race distance between a one and a two might have been something like two seconds. But when you have such a close theoretical minimum race distance time, you will always veer towards the one stop because it, it you know, you get less fewer hazards there, fewer chances of being delayed among slower traffic, etc. Um, so although you know a lot of those one stops were you know pretty universal throughout the field, they. Quite a few of them were actually very, very finely balanced. It's just you, you don't see it. It's below the radar. Yeah, that's just uh, just the nature of these things. Scott, let's look ahead a little bit because one of the big criticisms of the regulations was that they were too prescriptive, that all the cars would look the same. But we did see some quite pleasing variation in terms of the looks of the cars this year. Do you think that's going to continue or are we just going to end up with very similar cars next year and beyond, do you think? Um, I think given the overall performance of the Red Bull, I I can see, I, I, I would not be surprised if every team rocked up next year with a, with a design more like that and with the focus on the sort of the, the downwash to the, to, to the back of the, the floor. However, one thing did encourage me while the, um, while the tire management of the Ferrari was, uh, was an issue or whatever it was that was the issue for them in the second half of the year, because Ferrari spent the last two or three weeks of the season trying to insist that they actually had no time management problems. It was actually just the car wasn't quick enough. And yeah, notwithstanding the existing limitations of the Mercedes, which became apparent again in, in Abu Dhabi, the fact that the Merck and the Ferrari did still seem to be nice and competitive in certain situations in the second half of the year with very, very, very visibly different concepts to the Red Bull, gave me a bit of hope that actually you can make something different work in this en- in this uh, set of regulations. My only concern is that so many other teams had joy when they pursued alternative development routes and went down the Red Bull path a little bit more, that actually you could look at what Ferrari and Mercedes achieved this year and just say, well you weren't as good as that design which became the conventional design and actually if you'd were you just getting to the maximum of the potential of your package when actually if you went for something else there would be a higher ceiling so i'm a bit torn on it to be honest i like the idea of those sort of visual visual differences and i think we were all pleasantly surprised this year that we saw so much variation but there was a trend through the year, wasn't there, of people um, abandoning their different concepts and converging towards one. So maybe that is going to be similar next year and beyond. One thing that I would like to think um, is possible in the longer term 
and I probably think that this is a 2026 thing, so maybe this isn't the right place to really get into it, but I think that with everything that F1 is setting up in terms of the landscape around it, the, the budget cap, um, the, the, the handicap on the aerodynamic testing and all of this, I don't see why we need prescriptive regulations. I think the technical regulations could and should be opened up because if you're capping the you're ultimately capping the infrastructure investment that teams can make, you're capping the amount that they can spend, you're capping the number of wind tunnel runs they can do and the amount of CFD work they can conduct. What what's the argument? Uh, did, where do you two sit on this? Uh, are we too prescriptive for the era that F1 is creating? Is that realistic longer term or am I missing something that means the prescription is actually a good thing? I think the prescription um, is more imposed now by the aim, the aerodynamic aims um, than um, previously when it was to do with um, preventing a, a team spending its way to a big advantage. Um, so I think it's, it's still very difficult to envisage a, a totally free formula whereby you say, here's your budget, um, here's how big the car's got to be, off you go. I, I, I really don't think that's going to be something that we, we, we can see as achievable, um, in the certainly in the short to medium term. Yeah, I, I think um, I think that's a good point. I think when I when I think of this, I always my default is to go towards the 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 aim that we sort of talked about in the middle of this podcast, which is that idea of competitive spread and that kind of thing, which obviously was one of the major objectives for not only this rule set but just the broader objective that F one has and the FIA has. Um, so whenever I think of opening up development or the prescriptive nature of the regulations, it's the um, it's the competitive spread I'm thinking of. Um, and I always think like that, that to me with all the other stuff you're putting in isn't a threat to the objective of having teams that are more competitive and and more closely um, aligned because I think that there are a lot of creative teams. But I, And I do often forget that it all just comes back to what we started talking the podcast about, isn't it? Raceability. And if you want to control the way that these cars follow... I guess prescription is um, is necessary unless there is unless there's a middle ground and maybe that is something that will emerge over the next few years because this is these are ultimately very immature regulations and seeing them in practice for the first time I would imagine has given the F1 and FIA technical teams an awful lot of really really useful real world data to study so maybe there is a better sort of compromise to come. It becomes a philosophical question ultimately, doesn't it? Because the cost cap, as Mark said does create the conditions where you could open up the regs without the fear of someone brute force spending their way to an advantage, but you open up the possibility of somebody creating advantages. And and if the rules were more open, you would get a bigger competitive spread. That's just something that's very, very likely to happen. Yeah, you might get teams coming up with magic new ideas every now and again that will allow them to leap forward, but I think that there, there needs to there, there's almost a, a necessity to promise relatively close competition, and the way that a, a majority of those watching interpret that competition is they want to see stuff close, whereas actually you could, from a more sort of hardcore F one fan basis, argue that 
if you like the idea of creating that opportunity for someone to steal a march on others. So it's it comes down to that philosophy, and ultimately, it's a it's a business, isn't it? And it's a sport that wants eyeballs, and the best way to get that is to have things closer. So, yeah, it, 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 there's a, there's a possibility you could go that way, but I doubt it's going to go that way. And this sums up the whole challenge of the regulations, isn't it? Because everyone always presents kind of binary solutions. I'll oh, do this and it solves that. And it's like, well, actually, what you've got is almost a load of different dials that you kind of can shift around a little bit to try and get the the kind of output you want. But it's you're just one dial and it, and it compromises others. So it, it's quite a difficult balancing act. But I guess if we just come to final verdict, anyone want to give ratings out of 10 for the, uh, the F1 regs for their success in achieving their objectives? I, th- I think you can kind of go with a, I don't know, sort of, Six and a half, seven out of ten, solid. Yep, I was thinking exactly that. I was thinking six and a half, yeah, pushing towards seven. Yep. I was going to say six or seven, so splitting the difference sounds good. I wasn't sure if we were allowed to do decimal places, so. 6.7. <laughs> you can go to eight decimal <laughs> we're back places. To the, we're back to the original Ed Straw driver ratings. <laughs> or do we want to do fractions? We could do I fractions. Think, I think the only rule is no, no irrational numbers. Or inconsistencies, because earlier I think I gave... Certainly no vulgar fractions. <laughs> I gave I gave Pirelli a letter grade earlier, and now we're rating um, the, the the regs as a whole out, out of ten. So oh, we're, we're going to start do the whole podcast all over again, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we want to put ourselves uh, through. That. I was going to say put the listeners through that, but uh, it make no sense to release them both and then listen uh, listen through for consistency. But yeah, so it, th- this is the thing. It's like again, comes back to the binary, doesn't it? Were they a success or a failure? Well. They were qualified success, but they always were framed as a starting point. So this is this is the first fair point to draw some conclusions. So it's a nice, solid, solid start in the right direction. And 26 is going to be the key focus because we're going to see any changes for 23 through 25 are going to be tidying up minor tweaks. 26 is the one that they're really working on now. Well, thanks very much, Scott Mitchell Malm and Mark Hughes, for your insight. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen, plenty to read there, even as we get towards the end of the year. Have a listen to our other podcasts as well. There's a new series of Bring Back V10s coming out, plus our IndyCar podcast, MotoGP, the Race F1 tech show with Gary Anderson, so loads to listen to. Also have a look at our YouTube channel. Well, next time, we'll be back with a look ahead to the 2023 season and the big questions, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.